Welcome back to the comics course. Uh, I am Professor Hamby. I'm here with my TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. And we're getting back into the swing of things. As always, you can go to the website comicscourse.org to see everything that's going on. Go to my Twitter at Prof Hamby at Twitter to see the daily chess updates with my XTA Thomas, who's now stranded in Aust uh, I was about to say Australia, Antarctica. I know. I mean, he's only dealing with sub-zero temperatures and scarce food. I mean, Australia is far more dangerous. At least the birds aren't trying to eat him. Right. So this is Miskatonic University's remote education program from the Literature Department, Course 209, the Comics Course. We record this as a series of lectures distributed on podcasts, which you can find at comicscourse.captivate.fm, as well as on all the major services. Today, we are going to talk about the strange and foul history of Howard the Duck. Now, we're going to get to talking about the movie later. But I do want to tell you something, Rowan. Mm -hmm. You watched a little bit of the movie with me, and we'll talk about that later. You're still evil for that. You, in fact, I think you accused me of, abu of TA abuse. Yes. You only watched like five minutes of it. Abuse is abuse. Thomas has been listening to the podcast, apparently. He has seen the whole movie. He saw it with me. He thinks it should be a T.A. rite of passage. He said that he will take a handicap in the chess game if you watch the whole movie. That bastard's in Ar Antarctica. He can stay there. Oh, come on. I mean, I'm not very good at chess. I need a handicap. For making me watch that five seconds, I said you don't deserve it. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. We'll come back to that. Anyway, as people know... What is that? Did somebody set off the alarm in the physics building again? Oh, no, he broke in again. It happens, folks. Okay, so let's talk about the year 1972. I generally like to separate creators from their art, but sometimes that's really difficult to do. And in the case of Steve Gerber and Howard the Duck, it is. Now, if people are interested in reading this, I'm going to put up on our reading list the first collect, complete collected uh, edition of Howard the Duck, I've got it here. As you can tell, it's meant to be somewhat of a parody. We've got a very Donald Duck-looking figure. Mm -hmm. There were some legal challenges from Marvel about that. I mean, from Disney at one point about that. Kind of ironic that Disney now owns Marvel. So they made some changes to make him more distinct. And he's standing in front of what clearly is meant to be a Red Sonia figure, except she's cowering behind Howard the Duck holding a sword. Doesn't look much like Howard the Duck in the movie either, does it? No. No. For the best. It, it probably is. Well, 1972. What was, I, I like sometimes to talk about what was going on in the world when these comics were happening. And to understand the nature of what they were going for, I, I want you to imagine yourself back in 1972. Take It Easy by the Eagles was released, one of my favorite songs. One of the few songs I even know the lyrics to. I've sung many, 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 many times. Uh, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass was released and hit the top of the charts, which was in Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Do you remember that one? It's at the very beginning of the second movie where they're driving in the car. Oh, that one, yeah. Steve Gerber created Gar Guardians of the Galaxy. That was right, yeah. So, I mean, the circle is created there. But a, a lot was different in the world. It was almost 50 years ago. Well, and... Well, wow, I guess it is 2022 now, so it was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. 
the Boston Marathon allowed women to run in it for the first time. Took them long enough. It was the year of Watergate. Five White House operatives broke in to the Democratic National Committee uh, and became a scandal that toppled the presidency. Uh, it was also the year that Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney co-founded Atari Inc., which went on to revolutionize, really, computing as well as home entertainment. It was the year that George Carlin got arrested for by Milwaukee police for public obscenity when he did his seven words you can never say on television skit at uh, some sort of comedy event. Ima- I mean, imagine that today. It, that'd be all over YouTube in seconds with people calling out First Amendment issues. Yeah. He was in real danger of going away to jail for it. So the world has changed. Uh, it is. It was also the year, and I love this bit, Leslo Toth will attacked Michelangelo's Pieta in Vatican City, a statue, and broke away major parts of it with a hammer. That later became the central metaphor in a comic book by Steve Ditko, uh, released in 92, I think, which he called Laszlo's Hammer, it was an examination about creation and destruction and what is the connection between them. This was, of course, well into the time that Steve Ditko had a tenuous grasp on reality in some ways. Yeah, Ditko um, really lost it at And, of point. course, Ditko was one of the OG, if you will, uh, creative mavens of Marvel, as Steve Gerber came to be. Mm-hmm. Now, and so, so some of this stuff kind of comes full circle. Now, in 1972, what was Steve Gerber doing? He was selling used cars and writing ad copy that he for just selling mundane, everyday things. He hated it. He had a friend that worked at Marvel, and he was like, I'm dying out here. Give me a reason to live. <laughs> so, with nothing to his name, he moved to New York City and went to work for Marvel. Imagine having nothing to your name and being able to just move into New York City. Right. It was a different age of the world. It was. And he was from St. Louis, Missouri, which I've known people from Missouri. Some of them love it. Others call it the state of misery. And from what I've heard is there's no in between. Right. So I have been to Missouri. It felt like everywhere else to me, but I haven't lived there, so I have no personal point of reference for what actually living there is like. Now, he was part of a group of kind of maverick writers at Marvel at the time, and they were a very different kind of group. Um... He got there about the same time as uh, Don McGregor, who we've talked about, and they were very different personalities, and they ended up editing each other's books and made an agreement with each other to not actually edit them. You just write, and I'll rubber stamp it. And they, 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 they were good buddies in that regard. And I want to point that out, because that's going to become relevant later as things change a bit. That also just shows you how bad the editorial staff was. Well, we, we can debate that, and that's going to come up a little bit about the role of editorial. And we talked about this a little bit in the context of the end of Christopher Priest's run on Black Panther, but editorial has a difficult role at times. Anyway, he had a free reign, and he just he, he quickly became known at Marvel as the weird guy. For example, he was given uh, Sheena the, sea, the She-Devil to write who is a fur bikini-clad blonde who lives in the jungle and is like sex bomb Tarzan. How original. And 
he did things like have her roll around and she had this giant loft built in the trees, right? So she's like living in a downtown Manhattan apartment in the jungle, like the most absurd interpretations of Tarzan, and rolling around on this giant bed. And she's been written just like this was completely normal up until now. And when he takes it over, he has her rolling around having these like crises of, uh, uh, of, of existence. Like, this is so pointless. I came to live in the jungle, but now I just recreate all the urban comforts in the jungle. Am I deluding myself about the nature of my connection to the world? Who am I really? Is, am I Sheena the she-devil or just a deluded woman? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and she's reading John Paul Sartre. It's the third one. You're created by weird comic book men who just want an excuse to draw more women bikinis. Well, that's probably true. But this was the kind of writer he was. He couldn't take that stuff straight. You know, it, it, I, I've, jo- I, I've joked with people that if, instead of Don McGregor writing Black Panther that Steve Gerber has, then he would have ended up with T'Challa in the middle of Alabama going, why the fuck am I wearing this suit? What are wrong with me? And then we'd have a solid page of text that'd be just T'Challa's internal monologue going, what is my identity? Does the suit define me or do I define the suit? It is ceremonial garment, but why am I wearing it outside of a ceremony? Am I trying to project my cultural values into this white world? And there just—I mean, there wouldn't be people on the page. It'd just be a page of solid text. Um. So, so you're saying the end result still is all artists in Black Panther, when, even when he's outside of Wakanda, still wear him in his ceremonial garbs. Well, it's what happened there. So anyway, Steve Gerber ended up writing *Adventure into Fear* featuring the Man Thing. I, I think somebody down the quad has uh, uh, some stuff from the cafeteria that ended up getting a too, little too lively because they didn't get it in the freezer in time, and they're taking care of it. Lively? D- don't don't ask. No, nobody asks about Taco Tuesday anymore. Better question: Who the fuck is eating that fruit down there? I told you we don't talk about Taco Tuesday anymore. Okay. God, for the sake of all our sanity. <laughs> so, he be- began writing Adventure into Fear, which featured the Man-Thing. Now, there's an actual interesting side bit of history here about Man-Thing. Around the same time, Marvel introduced a humanoid swamp creature that is made out of plants called the Man-Thing in Louisiana, and DC Comics introduced a humanoid figure made out of plants from the Louisiana swamp called Swamp Thing. And there's a debate about who copied the idea from who because the respective creators were roommates. Huh. And both claim that they came up with the idea and talked about it and the other must have stolen it. I'm starting to see some coincidence. (laughs) Right. And both companies considered suing the other, and by the time everybody got talked to, and one may have stolen it, DC may have technically stolen it from Marvel, may, Marvel may have from DC, there was actually a reasonable possibility they just were watching the same TV and stuff and having the same conversations that caused them to independently come up with the idea. 
that the two companies just agreed to not sue each other and move on. Or maybe one came up with one idea and the other came up with one idea and... But they didn't coordinate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that. That they definitely but agreed I mean, upon. just by, like, talking about what they were going Well, that's what I said, the third possibility. Yeah. Anyway, they both moved on. Over time, they become totally different things. Swamp Thing uh, had the consciousness of Alex Holland became an iconic DC character, has been heavily used in animated movies and other stuff, uh, and heavily used by other writers. I mean, he was a major part of Grant Morrison's Animal Man, became the building brick upon which they built this whole mythology of the green and the Parliament of the Trees and other stuff that went into Hellblazer and other things. In fact, Hellblazer spun out of Swamp Thing, written by Alan Moore who also did uh, From Hell and other things. Man-Thing, however, never went beyond being a very simple, mindless monster that wandered around with a tagline of those that know fear burn at the touch of the Man-Thing. Now, this turned out to be a great vehicle for Steve Gerber because he was mindless. He could just wander around into all these insane situations and never react to them. And because it was an anthology title that nobody really cared about, well, not true anthology, but kind of, but, but the stories didn't have to be particularly connected, Steve Gerber began creating this mythology around Citrusville, Florida, a swamp town that is the crossroads of the universe, so stuff from different dimensions could fall in. And of course, it's in Florida. Of course, Florida man. And there's plenty of absurdity to go around. He really channeled his inner absurd attitudes. So, for example, in the first issue that Howard the Duck appears in, in Citrusville, Florida, a barbarian escapes as teleported energy through a jar of peanut butter and uses the peanut butter to create a body for himself. Korak, warrior prince of Cathartha. So he comes to our universe through a peanut butter jar. Right. Exactly. Now, along the way, Howard the Duck shows up, blah, blah, blah. Now, Jim Shooter, or sorry, not Jim Shooter, Roy Thomas was editor-in-chief at the time. Roy Thomas uh, looked at Howard the Duck a few issues into this and said, this is stupid. This is supposed to be adventure into fear. This does not speak of fear. Get rid of Howard the Duck. So Steve Gerber did. He basically had him uh, step off a cliff and fall to death. But people loved Howard the Duck. And people responded. Now, this is during the 70s when Stan Lee was eagerly going around college campuses. He loved being in the spotlight. And people started asking him, when are you going to bring back Howard the Duck? And Stan Lee was like, who's Howard the Duck? Because he wasn't very connected to what was actually happening in the comics. same thing about Black Panther? Yeah, pretty much. And somebody, it might have been Roy Thomas, was at San Diego Comic-Con on a panel and people started asking about Howard the Duck. So they knew they needed to bring him back. And they did. Now, when he came back into the comics, he got his own title. Now, before we leave his run into adventure and fear, into fear, I want to mention the kinds of villains that Howard dealt with. For example, Bessie the Hell Cow. Bessie. Bessie the Hell Cow was was one of Howard's big villains in Adventure into Fear. 
magician brings back Fessy. I know. Now, notice the dramatic, like, Dracula cape. Her origin is, but late one night, while Hans slept, Hans was the farmer, a desperate stranger came to the little farm. All the doors and windows of the village were locked, and the stranger was very thirsty and not for milk. It was Dracula, and is a reference to Tomb of Dracula, which was being written by Steve Gerber's friend, uh, uh, Oh, God, why am I choking on a name right now? Uh, uh, Marv Wolfman. Marv Wolfman. Which had started in 1972, uh, around the same time that Steve Gerber started there. And he was obviously a fan. And Marv Wolfman said that he was a fan of Steve Gerber, stood up for him, and thought Howard the Duck was kind of brilliant. And... So this is an interesting homage. This is gonna ha this is gonna come up as relevant later. Okay? So he started in nineteen seventy-two, Adventure into Fear, uh, number nineteen in December nineteen seventy-three was the premiere of Howard the Duck. They killed him off. As I said, people were upset. In fact, some guy from Canada even mailed them a dead duck with an angry letter about killing this poor defenseless duck. And that thing had to have been nasty by the time it got to New York City. That's all I'm saying. Don't fuck with Canadians and their ducks. And, you know, the only Canadian ducks I've ever seen are big freaking birds. So I hate to think how big this, this package was and how nasty it was when they opened it. And... Now, they also, along the way, got perfectly reasonable letters. So it was clear they had something going on and they needed to bring back Howard the Duck. Now... Keep in mind, his other villains were things like Gorko the Man Frog. So th these weren't serious, but they weren't just comedy either. They made fun of comics. They made fun of everything, really. Mm -hmm. They were heavily satirical. But they weren't particularly biting. They, they did it with a fairly light touch. Mm -hmm. Is that Spider-Man? Yep, Spider-Man showed up, uh, along with plenty of other characters. But they did eventually reintroduce Howard the Duck uh, first into, as a whole dedicated backup feature and Man-Thing. And then later, he got his own dedicated Howard the Duck comic book. Now, this was being written completely by uh, him, but Steve Gerber. And there was one artist at first, and then others came along. Uh, the original artist, I think, was Frank Brunner, if I remember. Um, he started illustrating it, but he had personality conflicts with Gerber along the way. One of them was, at that time at Marvel, there was something called the Marvel Method. And it was where, basically, writers would outline a book, and then it would be left to the artist to fill in details. Gerber completely scripted. He wanted, he described every panel, he described, gave every bit of dialogue, which just left it to the artist to bring their visual image, but not to add their own story elements or anything like that. And Brunner was used to working in the Marvel method, so he didn't like that. So he ended up getting replaced by others. Now, during this time, a woman came to work at Mar Marvel named Mary, and I may have her last name wrong, Skerns, S-K-E, uh, sorry, S-K-R-E-N-E-S, and she became the inspiration for the female companion of Howard, Beverly, wearing go-go boots, being very hip, that kind of thing. And not surprisingly, Gerber moved in with her, and they began a long-term relationship. 
In fact, uh, she was originally from Las Vegas. He moved there to go with her when she wanted to be closer to family, and that's eventually where he passed away, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But at the time, she became a major inspiration. Some people have referred to her as his muse. And she is the one who helped pitch the idea of a dedicated Howard the Duck comic to Stan Lee, who still approved new titles. And Stan Lee approved it, along with another title that has its own slightly interesting history called Omega the Unknown. But we're not going to uh, uh, go into that path right now. Hold on, I need a sip of some liquid. But along the way, uh, Howard the Duck, after he got his own title, continued to be satirical. I mean, here we're seeing an issue where they're basically satirizing um, uh, Chang Shi, which was also being published at the same time. But some of the tone of the humor did change during this period of time. While Howard had always been satirical, especially in Adventures into Fear, after he got his own title, sometimes it became harsh. It wasn't just making fun of, but Gerber went on the attack. And he was ready to attack everything. While he was satirizing, say, Shang-Chi, or in this issue, the Son of Satan character at Marvel, the villains in the subtext were often everything Gerber hated about the world. Uh, conservative economics, um, religious fanaticism. I mean, just everything in the world became something to attack through satire, not just make fun of. And it was a tone that some like Marv Wolfman really did not like. And a split happened because Marv Wolfman need, felt that the tone of the comic needed to be lighter and more kid-friendly. And they had a pretty serious disagreement about that, which led to a lot of hurt feelings. Now, during the same period of time, Howard the Duck is continuing to get super popular. In fact, by 1976... Marvel even decided to do a gag where they claimed Howard the Duck was running for president and on the all-night party ticket. Now, this is around the time where the split happened with the original artist. Uh, Bruner put out a print, basically, of Howard the Duck, and Gerber demanded part of the money from it. And Bruner said, what part of this did you draw or write? And soon they were at part ways. I think that might have been what gave them and I gave Gerber and his girlfriend an idea because at the time, frankly, the whole history of Marvel is filled with an absolute incompetence when it comes to merchandising and deals related to merchandising. They signed away so much money related to toys and movies and other stuff for most of their history. It is absolutely insane. And they went to Marvel and said, we think you should do some Howard merchandise related to this upcoming, uh, you know, promotional thing of he's running for president. And they said, nope, nope, nope. So they said, well, we won't do it. And they said, okay. They even signed a contract and gave him the legal right to make Howard the Duck merchandise. And he didn't have to pay them anything. <laughs> so I, Mary goes out to a New York City comic shop pre-sells a ton of these Howard the Duck for President buttons that say something like, get down America, and enough to pay for the whole production run, and they're literally in like a back Marvel office stuffing, stuffing envelopes 
selling these things, um, which was just insane. And they had to know there was a lot of demand. Mar Howard was so popular when Marvel first published it that they underestimated popularity even then. They only called, they only printed 275,000 copies. It was quickly selling for 10 times the cover cost. People were, were creating conspiracy theories about how issues had to have been accidentally dumped in a landfill or some computer error to explain why they couldn't find a copy to buy. And so they're consistently making this mistake of underestimating demand. Meanwhile, the Village Voice had How Howard the Duck on its cover. I mean, they had not had mainstream coverage of a media figure at Marvel like that since the drug story of Spider-Man where they foregoed the comics code. So, I mean, this was a big, big deal. And they still didn't grok that people had this kind of demand for it. But the toll, it, there was a toll on Gerber. I mean, things got increasingly weird. For example, issue number 16. Th this was the issue that made people go, something is weird here. Howard the Duck, special once-in-a-lifetime album issue. Howard at the mercy of his most powerful foe, the incredible creator, Deadline Doom. And he's jumping off a typewriter. And in the opening pages, we see a new character introduced, Dr. Bong. What? <laughs> now the you see it. Fuck. Now, I'm going to flip through some of the pages here, okay? Uh-huh. Notice just that text, some illustrations, text, text. Turn left with a fork in my tongue. <laughs> this was an actual issue of the comic. He's standing on a rock with somebody that is Steve Gerber, but we only see him from behind, and they watch characters walk by on a rainbow. In this issue, Howard writes letters to Steve Gerber that Steve Gerber responds to. And he talks about the creation of the comics. Someone was enjoying easy access to drugs. See where they're feeding this guy through a fan and jars of Gerber-strained brains are coming out? Mm -hmm. This was Steve Gerber was super stressed. He was driving cross-country to move to Vegas, and he basically had a mental breakdown while doing this. It shows. People talk about this issue in Legend. I, I do not have a physical copy. I want to find this physical copy someday. Uh, it, it's a fascinating point of history. And it's interestingly um, a sort of format, a style of writing that another anthropomorphic writer uh, got into with a series called Cerebus. And as that creator's mentality kind of went more and more down the rabbit hole, he began producing whole series of books like this in this incredibly self-indulgent style. Welcome being a creator where you monetize your mental breakdown. Right. And at this point, he was about the last writer editor. He, he was about the last of the big Maverick writers at Marvel. Um, by the time this was happening, Jim Shooter was taking over. And Jim Shooter, he was fine with creative ideas. In fact, he was a good friend of Christopher Priest. Jim Shooter was one of the people that, that pushed for Priest at Marvel Comics. In fact, there's a fascinating story that turns out to be true. 
Uh, he wanted Christopher Priest to have a computer to make writing easier. And in those days, computers were very rare. So he bought Christopher Priest a computer out of his own money. And to pay him back, Christopher Priest wrote a big Spider-Man comic and put Jim Shooter's name on it and snuck it through with approval so Jim Shooter would get paid for it. Holy shit. <laughs> and to hear Christopher Priest tells it, Christopher Priest says, yeah, a lot of the guys like Steve Gerber, like uh, uh, Don, like, you know, Inglehart, uh, they didn't like Jim Shooter because he was dad. He was dad, the editorial dad. And, and dad has to lay down the law sometimes. Dad has to say the book isn't selling, we have to try something else. And, you know, they were frat boys with frat boy attitudes. Mm -hmm. And they didn't like that. And as much as I like Steve Gerber's work, and I love the idea of unrestrained art, there, it is a commercial product in the end. Mm -hmm. It does have to sell in order for you to still be able to create it. So that was a problem. And the attitude did not stop just there. So after 27 issues, 1978, Steve Gerber left Howard the Duck. Uh, now, it had been put off a little while. He thought about leaving before, but he was offered, I think, the last writer-editor combo position Marvel ever gave anybody. I think. So he had stuck around a little bit longer, but this was the end. And... He was gone. Now, Marv Wolfman took over after that, who did Tomb of Dracula and supported, and that uh, Gerber gave a very lighthearted parody to with Bessie the Hell Cow. And, but by now, their relationship was gone. Gerber described Marv Wolfman's writing of Howard the Duck as trash. He said to the village voice, Once I was gone, Howard was lobotomized, devoid of substance, and turned into a simple-minded parody. So they're putting him out of his misery. That was him referring to the final cancellation of the book. Wow. Yeah. Now, at that point, the comic basically went out of publication for a while. And normally, when a comic goes out of publication and is low sales, they disappear from the zeitgeist. That never really happened for Howard. You even told me, when we started talking about doing this lecture, that you knew of Howard the Duck. He has survived in the zeitgeist through merchandise, through memes now, all that kind of stuff got revitalized when he had the small appearance in Guardians of the... I think in the after-credits scene of one of the Guardians of the Galaxy and has now been in a couple more. I think he was in one of the animated what-ifs. Yeah. But this isn't a film course. I'm not going to go into all that. Um, well, I'm pretty sure everyone knows who Howard Duck is. I think there are people who know he is who don't even know that he was from comics. I didn't know he was from comics. I had no clue who, who he... What he was from. I so, just knew of Howard the Duck. He's had some other comics as time has gone by, um, but not a regular running title. Uh, I'm, I've wondered if they might have him appear in the upcoming She-Hulk series at Marvel, because he has appeared a number of times with She-Hulk and tied into that. There's especially been some She-Hulk runs that were brilliantly kind of fourth wall breaking, where the characters really acknowledge their absurdity and talk to the reader. Uh it did that long before Deadpool did. <laughs> so, he, anyway, he left Marvel. He went to work for Malibu for a while. He ended up back at Marvel, uh, which people gave him grief for, but he said, who else has the marketing? He, But he and Jim Shooter still didn't get along. In fact, Jim Shooter, 
in Secret Wars 2, uh, did something just aimed at, Je at Steve Gerber. He wrote a storyline where there was this ex-comic uh, uh, book writer who went to work in cartoons. Steve Gerber went to work in the animation industry uh, for Saturday morning cartoons and complained about the commercialization of America while earning his living from commercializing culture and had his name basically rhyme with Steve Gerber and had him look exactly like Steve Gerber and had him be a total just jerk. Which, so Steve Gerber comes back to maybe work with Marvel. He is offered to write Howard the Duck. He turns in basically a parody of Secret Wars, which was Jim Shooter's baby, after reading how he got speared by Jim Shooter in Secret Wars 2. And he basically writes a parody of this giant crossover stuff, making fun of it. And Jim Shooter's like, mm, we have some editorial notes for you. And Gerber walked away. He's like, nope, screw it, I'm done, not doing this. Gerber should have accepted that. Now, one of the titles that Steve Gerber worked on was Thundar the Barbarian, when he was working on cartoons. Thundar the Barbarian was featuring character designs of another ex-Marvel name, an artist who a few people have heard of, named Jack Kirby. Kirby. Jack the King Kirby. So they got to know each other. Now, Steve Gerber wanted to sue Marvel. He felt that Marvel was breaking an agreement, was publishing Howard illegally. He started working on Howard the Duck before the 1976 copyright law went into effect. And he argued it was not work for hire. So he got together with Jack Kirby and said, I want to do this series called Destroyer Duck. And it's to raise money for the lawsuit so I can pay lawyers. And Jack Kirby basically looked at him and said, so you can't afford to pay me to do your art. And Steve Gerber said, that's correct. But... You're going to take all the money from this to sue Marvel. And he said, that's correct. And so Jack Kirby went, okay, Sounds I'll do good. it pro bono. Sounds good. In fact, the cover of Destroyer Duck number one um, is, it says, <laughs> Special Lawsuit Benefit Edition. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you can see the Kirby hands there. And it was published by Eclipse. So, eventually that got settled out of court. And I, I don't know what all the terms of it was, but it apparently was adequate enough to at least chill Steve Gerber out. And it should be noted uh, that his original work on a lot of this stuff long predated uh, the share agreements. So DC had instituted changes which gave profit sharing to writers and artists, and Marvel copied that. But most of Steve Gerber's iconic work on Howard was in the 1970s, before those agreements had taken place. So Gerber still was not terribly happy. And he sued, I mean, everything related to Howard the Duck. There was even a production company making a Howard the Duck radio show starring Jim Belushi, who was a big comedian name at the time. He even sued them. So, wow. yeah. yeah. 
it, it was an interesting turn of events. So it got settled out of court, and he went back to work for Marvel. The stuff happened. And then, basically, in the chain of events, a movie came along. It might have gotten delayed. It might I imagine maybe they wanted it to happen sooner. Maybe they were concerned about lawsuits. I don't know. But when he turned down the editorial notes on his new Howard the Duck title, he basically went to go work on the movie. Now, the Howard the Duck movie ended up being released in 1986. So it was in pre-production long before that. Uh, it had the technological limitations at the time. The duck in it looked nothing like Howard the Duck in the comic books. And the script was bad. And it, it's you, you can find this on YouTube. You can Google Siskel and Ebert, worst movies of 1986, and Howard the Duck is on that list. Now, fascinatingly, it did not have a reason to fail on paper. In fact, Tim Robbins has said that on paper, it had every reason to succeed. And it had Tim Robbins in it. Tim Robbins, if you're not familiar with the name, is a highly celebrated actor. He's won a Best Supporting Actor uh, uh not Grammy, uh, Emmy. He's won Golden Globes. He's won uh, accolades and awards from the Cannes Film Festival. He's a highly celebrated actor. And was, and didn't George Lucas was the... George Lucas produced it. it. Yep. Uh, a longtime collaborator of George Lucas's directed and wrote it, along with his wife writing and producing. Leah Thompson was in it. She made this movie in between Back to the Future and Red Dawn. Two of the best movies of the 80s. Wow. So, on paper, everything looked good. On paper, this uh, was... The, the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes is 14%. It's lower than the Catwoman movie with Halle Berry. Damn, Howard. I know. In fact, this was the last movie the director ever directed. He refused to... He did, chose to not direct any more movies after this. He decided there's... Only down from here. I'm cursed. Right. I, he was like, I'm not going to inflict my directing on the world again. And he had directed good movies before this. And he get, did continue to write movies. Um, it was also the last movie his wife produced. She was like, I'm done. Nope. So, so she also agreed she became cursed after that. This movie ended careers. But they didn't expect it to. I mean, everybody expected this movie to make huge money. Right. Well, I mean, it already had a lot of big names with it. So, uh, that was it. I mean, the movie bombed. You watched five minutes of it. Tell me honestly, what did you think of it? Honestly, I think I would have rather stu stabbed all my toes than continue. I think that's probably fair. It, it is an awful movie. God, the costuming was poor movie quality. If I have to see duck tits... One more time, I think I might stab out my eyes. I wonder if some people became furries from watching that. Oh, definitely. That I mean, it was like 10 years before the big furry boom. Uh, that started it. That was like the little bump. It's kind of disturbing on that level. <laughs> um, the bits that I think were meant to be funny were boring. Mm -hmm. the, the five minutes I've been told is the best part, and they were just boring, and there were some parts where you just rolled your eyes. Right. And the acting was plain. Mm-hmm. Now, after this point, uh, Howard did not come back in a regular title for 
I think ever, really. But he did continue to appear. In fact, they wanted to do a uh, Spider-Man team-up comic with him and reached out to Gerber, basically after everybody else they offered it to said, I don't feel comfortable doing this. You need to talk to Steve Gerber. And this is the point at which you know a character has become intrinsically linked to a creator. A character that Steve Gerber didn't care about. He was perfectly fine taking the editorial note from Roy Thomas to kill the character off. But people loved and now has associated himself with after its success, which is an interesting comment on how he may be guilty of some of that commercialization stuff, too. Uh-huh. But his identity has now become linked to Howard the Duck. It is interesting that a creator is not necessarily in control of their own creation. and they not re- They really are. You put stuff out there in a public space, and the consumers determine as much of what is art as anything else control over their creation is just wrong right that's that's not how this chaotic universe works right so he ended up writing it and there was a little bit of conflict uh over the book and he considered not doing in fact some people said that he was going to pull out of it uh and the, the the conflict was basically over this guy at marvel named harris was trying to bring howard the duck back uh, not just for a special issue, but in a bunch of other stuff, like Ghost Rider and some of the X-Men tie-in books and stuff like that. And it was clear they could do this because they owned it, but they knew that Gerber wasn't going to be happy with it. Gerber wasn't happy with anybody writing Howard but him. So Gerber finally said, okay, you know what? I said I was going to do Howard the Duck. I'm not pulling out just because I found out that they want to do this other stuff with him. I've also been talking to Eric Larson over at Image about doing something with Savage Dragon. So, this is what he did. Steve Gerber wrote a crossover between them. Where characters only appear and hidden by shadow in like one panel in each book. So the stories are totally separate, except this one panel that can connect them in the same space, shown from different angles where you don't see the other characters. And the end effect of it is a universe crossover where Destroyer Duck grabs Howard. There are all these Howard the Duck clones running around in the Marvel book. And he pulls Howard the Duck into the Destroyer Duck universe and puts him basically under witness protection. And so what he's basically done is Steve Gerber has in this extremely sneaky backhanded way canonically said that the Howard the Duck left in the Marvel Universe is a clone and the real Howard the Duck is in the Destroyer Duck Universe in Witness Protection. (laughs) It it kind of pissed off Marvel when they saw it. No shit. Now, it took a long time for anybody to see it because it ran way behind schedule. I mean, Gerber, people, comic shop owners were so mad that Gerber was offering to, like, mail them printed out copies of the script. As if this is going to be useful to comic book owner shop owners, right? What are they supposed to do? Sell the script to the people who want to read the comic? Yeah, that was not very smart of him. Right. I mean, yeah. So by the time it finally hit, no one cared. But looking back on the history of it, it's a, fa- it's a fascinating footnote. And it's not the first time. He had been involved with these sorts of crossovers before. In fact... 
he did an unofficial JLA Avengers crossover back in the 70s in cooperation with writers of Justice League of America, where they were both at the same event with people cosplaying superheroes, and neither company was condoned it as a crossover. And the other, so the events all happen in the same place, and you just see people in the background in the JLA comic dressed as Avengers, and vice versa. And they're, you're just left to assume that they're cosplayers, but if you read both books, you know that both superhero teams are in the same place at the same time, interacting with the same events. So Gerber had always liked tweaking the nose of authority, which might also be why, you know, he had some of this conflict. But yet chose to be authority on his own work by suing people. Right. Well, he also wanted the money, let's be Which kind of comes off as slightly hypocritical. Right, which is what Jim Shooter was going for. I'm not sure there are perfectly right or wrong people in some of this. Yeah. And there were probably tones to the discussion that I don't know. Yeah. Right. I'm just so, saying based on what I've seen on Twitter. Now, one of the fascinating... The next regular series to be written of Howard the Duck was, in fact, written by Steve Gerber. And let me see if I can find that here. This was done in 2001, I want to say. And let me see if I can find it here to pull up. I think this is it. And, yeah, that is Howard the Duck. Would you like to describe it? So that's fucking now. That's a horror movie protagonist. That's a Chuck E. Cheese-themed horror movie character. Right. Now, this was for their Max line. Parental advisory, explicit content, no comics code, of course. And... It is a person standing, like... On their knees almost? Mm -hmm. have, well, he's crouched down. Like, yeah, like crouched, wearing green pants, a green suit, a tie, holding a cigar with white, like Howard the Duck gloves, while having a Chuck E. Cheese looking rat hat on. Oh, and, and it's a rat. You see his tail at the bottom. So, what Steve Gerber decided to do, because there was all this discussion with Disney about maybe he was too Howard, too Donald Duck looking, <coughs> which kind of bothered Steve Gerber because he was like, he's an anthropomorphic duck. Don't they all kind of look alike? But anyway, he's like, okay, if they're going to give me grief about Howard the Duck looking like a duck, I'll make Howard the Duck a rat. It just looks so much like a horror movie poster. <laughs> and so Howard the Duck is a rat. Right. It, it, you really need to look up that image on Google or something because it looks so much like a horror movie poster. Mm-hmm. Now, after that, there was a four-issue series that ran in 2007, uh, and then Steve, which was not written by Steve Gerber, and Steve Gerber passed away in 2008, 14 years ago now. He died of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, um... I believe he was still living with his girlfriend, Mary. They'd stayed together all that time. He was still in Vegas, certainly. They never married? I don't think they ever married. Um, if they did, she didn't change her name. Mm. She said of him, there were some people who could only write, and that's all they could do. Steve, unfortunately, was one. And people should know comics are a place to start and then move on. But he didn't like animation, and he didn't like television. He liked comic books. So, yeah. 
Uh, after that, there was a new Howard the Duck series that came out in 2014. I don't think I've seen another one s since then, which has kind of surprised me with the uh, interest that came up after Guardians of the Galaxy, because Marvel was certainly willing to chase anything from the movies that interest people. Yeah. So that's it. That is the strange and foul history of Howard the Duck. And that is extra weird seeing as they don't have to worry about the Donald Duck situation because Disney owns them. Yeah, that's a non-issue at this Disney point. Disney isn't going to sue something it owns. Yeah. So that's it. And it added, uh, ended it tragically with Steve Gerber passing away. I'm sure we'll see more of Howard, but I have to admit, in my mind, every iteration of Howard uh, isn't quite right. That's not written by Steve Gerber. Um, I, I, I think the creator and the creation are too intrinsically linked. Um, which is interesting, because I say comics are a mythology, and in mythology, they're inherently retold. There are iconic versions of Batman, but Batman can be written by many people. Unfortunately, even Frank Miller, which makes him the goddamn Batman. That's another entry in the worst comics ever made that list. Um, but is there a valid Howard the Duck that isn't Steve Gerber? I'm not sure there is. Well, and I'm not saying others can't write good stories, but somehow Howard the Duck is a part of Steve Gerber's mind. And I'm I, and I'm not saying other people can't write good Howard the Duck. And people may well prove me wrong. People may write amazing Howard the Ducks, and I don't associate him inherently with Steve Gerber anymore. But right now I do, despite believing that comics are mythology. It's, But, you know, sometimes certain things... Uh, certain exceptions prove the rule, so to speak. And, and I feel like this is one of them. Okay. So we're going to bail for now. Uh, we'll be back next time with the first of the Reginald Hudlin runs on Black Panther. And I am going to say, people have asked me, are you going to do every Black... They're still doing Black Panther. Ta-Nehisi Coates is still doing Black Panther. No, I'm not going to try to get all the way up to current publication. We're going to do Reginald Hudlin, and we're probably going to go a little ways into Ta-Nehisi Coates. Certainly the early volumes are absolutely worth talking about. Um, I'm not sure if we want to get up to the intergalactic Empire of Wakanda storyline. No. We, we will probably stop before then. Please no. The, the, the priest run has thrown off for my brain. You, you don't want to get confused by the time travel gods and space stuff? No. Okay. This and the frogs are, are enough. They broke you? Well, the frogs will return. They always fucking do. Despite being supposedly retconned out of existence. Yeah, I, I'm honestly surprised they didn't include the frogs in the movies. But I do have a question. If their position is that as of Reginald Hudland, Christopher Priest's run is retconned out of existence, does that mean Jack Kirby's is retconned out as well? Because it was based heavily on Jack Kirby's. I guess so. If you have to retcon out anything by Jack Kirby... You've made a mistake. Okay. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.